Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how's it going? I am good. And Will, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a book coming out like really soon. <laughs> That's right. That's been a very pressing question on your mind. Yes. <laughs> yes. We are starting the countdown. So we are now, as of this podcast coming out, we will be slightly less than five weeks away from the release of my book on QAnon. It's called Trust the Plan, and it's available for pre-order now, 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 now. So if you like the podcast, you like what I do on here, or uh, or maybe you like what Kelly does only, and it's kind of <laughs> like that. So it's all about QAnon. It's all about kind of our conspiracy theory, deranged future, and where we're going as a country and a world. But look, some of these books, they come out, and they about kind of the, the wacky right-wing internet. But look, I got into the guts of it. I traveled the country. I met... Some folks, very interesting people, maybe people you wouldn't like to hang out with. So I did it for you. There's some truly wild stories in this book. As people who may be familiar with publishing know, pre-orders are so important in terms of setting up the promotion and kind of showing the publisher and the booksellers that this is a book people are looking forward to. So once again, trust the plan available where all fine books are sold. Yeah. If Will gets like 50,000 pre-orders, he's going to personally get Q on the pod. It's going to happen. I can definitely make that promise on his behalf. (laughs) Absolutely. We can make that happen. And yes. So so kind of my rival right now is Prince Harry in book selling. So we're gunning for him. Lots of similarly explosive revelations no one asked for in my book. <laughs> so moving on, Kelly, I've been fascinated by this sort of growing meme on the right, which is the referring to the shadowy forces out to get you that you might once have called the cabal or the establishment or the World Economic Forum pushing the Great Reset. But now they're talking about the Matrix. Have you had a chance to see this? Yeah. And it's so dumb. I mean, listen, overall, I'm glad they're saying the Matrix rather than the Cabal. It's like less blatantly anti-Semitic. But there's this kind of guy. It's the Andrew Tates of the world. It's the Logan Pauls of the world. It's the people trying to connect with a certain young millennial old Gen Z strata who maybe haven't read a book. And they really reference the Matrix as the thing that's holding them back, the thing that's pulling them down, the thing that won't let guys just be men. Yeah. So I noticed this first with Andrew Tate, who is a guy we've talked about here, sort of the king of the manosphere, the self-declared top G, who now is currently sitting in a Romanian jail cell on his human trafficking case. When he's Sort of emerged or somehow got access to his Twitter account again, he said, oh, the Matrix sent their agents. And now, of course, this is kind of a callback to the movie The Matrix, but this is a new use of it. I mean, they're using it, as you said, like sort of in the same way as the cabal, or you might think of using a triple parentheses to sort of indicate sort of the Jewish world order is after you. It's sort of more Trumpian version of this would be the deep state. I think this is really being adopted by guys who like don't have a direct political valence. They're just sort of generally awful. In Andrew Tate's case, like really, really heinous. But his fans have kind of picked this up. I always talk about Twitter spaces on here, but I'm in a lot of these like, let's hear both sides of the Andrew Tate case Twitter space. <laughs> and these guys are always like that, like the globalist wanted to take him down because of his message of positivity or they didn't like the truth he was telling. But if you think about this, I mean, Andrew Tate's main thing is just being really, really vile towards women and also like flexing that he has a lot of sports cars. And so I think the idea that the deep state would be after him over that doesn't really stand up. And so you sort of have to make it broad. Broader. So you have to say, hmm, the matrix. Like when a QAnon guy goes down for tax evasion or some sort of statutory issue, 
I kind of buy his, I mean, I don't buy it, I guess, but it makes sense within his worldview that the cabal is after him because this is someone who's supposedly revealing deep truths about the way of the world. But in the case of someone like Andrew Tate, I think he kind of has to invent a new villain because otherwise it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, Andrew Tate's whole thing besides outright misogyny was kind of bragging that he's a rich guy, bragging that he can buy cars and like cigars and stuff like that. And it doesn't really seem to match the theme of the Matrix that like, oh no, we've got to take down this guy who's telling people to consume expensive items. Like, no, you can't tell people to spend their money. That would be awful. It's manufacturing a villain, as you say, right? I mean, if you get arrested for alleged sex trafficking or accused in the UK of rape, don't have too many people making you look like the good guy. And so, yeah, you need this shadowy, very cinematic opponent who's working against you. And I think fans like that too, they can kind of insert themselves into that. They can imagine themselves as Neo. And it's sort of like, I feel like every boomer who feels persecuted says this is exactly like 1984. Well, this is for younger people and they just don't have to read the book. You can imagine yourself living on that submarine in the Matrix with Andrew Tate (laughs) and helping him fight Mr. Smith. The other thing, briefly, as we move on from Andrew Tate, is that Vice has had this great reporting over the past few weeks since we last talked about him that really puts Tate dead to rights in terms of these sex crimes, recordings of him talking about it, stuff like that. So folks should check that out. For me, though, this kind of Matrix thing moved into the comical when it was adopted by Logan Paul. Now, people may remember Logan Paul, YouTuber, Japanese suicide forest visitor. Now, he's facing a couple issues, including like an alleged cryptocurrency scam. But the one that I think may have sparked him adopting this Matrix language involved a pig he adopted. This was a pig named Pearl. He clearly adopted for views a few years ago and was like, isn't this epic? I have a pig. But look, the pig, I guess, didn't keep the views coming in because the pig was soon fobbed off on a handful of people and it kind of rotated around to various kind of fly-by-night LA animal rescues. And then the pig resurfaced, unfortunately, in a very dire situation, according to this seemingly legitimate animal rescue, that Pearl was very maltreated. And so people said, Logan Paul mistreated his pig. But he said, no, I merely gave it to people who mistreated it. And so then he tweets, the Matrix is real. Pray you never become its target. So the idea that like the Matrix doesn't want you knowing about Logan Paul's pig, they don't want you carelessly adopting pigs. I mean, th- this is just the, kind of the height of this kind of self-serious, this Matrix thing lends itself to. Yeah, absolutely. And if I can just square the circle with the misogyny here. So a while ago, I ran into Logan Paul at a Flat Earth conference where he was pretending to be a flat earther. And I didn't know much about the guy except for the suicide forest thing. So I looked up his channel and previously his most recent video had been carrying around a pig and using it to pick up women. So I think that's actually, it's probably the same pig. It's probably what it was for. Oh, I'm sure. Oops. Stop pulling the chicks. Got to give away the pig. (laughs) The pig. I mean, the pig gets to be a couple hundred pounds. It's much harder. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm just flagging that. I think it's going to become more of a thing. I think in a few months, like Ted Cruz is going to be like, the Matrix is after me. We're going to see it adopted by anyone who, who kind of gets into any sort of hot water. All right. Move over Keurigs. There is a new appliance at the center of the culture war. Will, what is going on with the blood feud over gas stoves? Yes, well, they'll take my gas stove from my cold, dead hands. So this has kind of been bubbling for about a week, but I wanted to sort of trace the root of the gas stove culture war people may have seen because suddenly all these people are tweeting, oh, I love my gas stove. Biden's not going to Brandon back off. You leave my gas stove alone. And a couple of people in my actual non-podcast life when I unplugged from the Matrix, they asked me about this in the origins of it. So I thought we'd dive in here. So Kelly, what kind of stove are you working with? So, okay, I have a gas stove, and hey, hey, don't get mad at me. Listen, I've I've looked at the back. It requires to convert to an electric. I got to rewire the kitchen. and So, listen, one day I will have a woke kitchen with an electric stove, maybe a nice induction unit, but right now, doing the gas, killing the planet. I have the wokey electric stove, and I'm thrilled to say that because... So, this whole thing starts... In December, there's this study that says gas stoves cause roughly 13% of childhood asthma and are basically the equivalent of having someone smoking cigarettes in your house. And so then this study gets picked up. It is foodies. Oh, we love our gas stove. Another famously aggrieved cultural interest group, uh, foodies. They're first, they're upset about it. And then it makes the transition over to conservative realm because Richard Trumpka, who's a member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, he's asked about this study and someone says, hey, Richard, looks like these gas stoves aren't so good for kids. And he says, well, everything's on the table for regulating these. So 
people then take this to mean that Brandon's gas stove cops are going to go door to door and be and replace your Kelly's gas stove with an electric with an induction. Absolutely. Come on over. You want my address? <laughs> <laughs> and so this becomes like very reminiscent of this idea that the feds are going to take your bump stocks and your various gun accoutrement. So Trumpka, I'm sure, is in hot water with the White House right now because he was pretty assertive about it. He said the products that can't be made safe can be banned. It seems clear to me that his intention was to ban future gas stoves or to regulate them more intensely. Not that this kind of very unfeasible idea of going door to door and taking gas stoves, but this has really set off. I think the right saw this really as an opportunity to capitalize on something. Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of these instances where somebody slips up and says something that can be wildly misinterpreted. It can piss a lot of people off, right? Because people are partial to their kitchen equipment. And I've got that, even though I will say that you can cook just as well in an electric stove, this is a pet grievance of mine. But it doesn't feel as cool. I will concede that. I recently cooked on a gas stove and I was like, here we go, baby. Like we're like, we're cooking it up. All right. What what do you do? Are you like hand frying like tortilla shells, getting them on the flame? Because that's the only reason you need a gas stove. I'm becoming enraged. But back to the topic. You know, this is something where I don't personally think that the right actually thinks that Richard Trump is going to come into your house and haul away your gas stove. But it's useful, right? It fires people up, no pun intended, because they think that this is another instance of government incursion in their lives. And it becomes almost a meme, almost a joke in that I don't think either side really believes that the their opponents are going to take any literal action over it. And so it almost feels like play fighting to me in an odd respect, because a couple weeks after this comes out, now we've got Republicans in Congress tweeting like, come and take it about my stove and Democrats tweeting like, yes, we actually will take your stove. No, none of that is actually going to happen. And both know it. But it's sort of like this placeholder drama, I think, in the doldrums of the news cycle. It has the potential to be a culture war football, certainly when I saw that the Trumpka said, oh, yeah, maybe we're going to ban them that I mean, people don't like stuff being banned, certainly on the right. And I think this gets at a larger issue, which is this impulse on the right for the past couple decades to sort of like reject any form of government regulation. This idea that there's sort of a an opposition to the idea that government could improve anything. I mean, they certainly love that Ronald Reagan quote where it's like five or six most dangerous words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. They love, love, love quoting that. And so I think that gets to the root of this. I mean, certainly I think they're kind of ignoring the whole childhood asthma aspect of it. But I mean, this was really picked up. I mean, Ronnie Jackson, now a member of Congress from Texas, previously the Dr. Feelgood of the White House, the the guy who was accused of handing out bills to everybody, he tweets, I'll never give up my gas stove. If the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. And then with a Texas flourish, come and take it. I mean, yeah, that's like what Home Depot does, right? It's not that hard. It loses something when it's not a gun. Like, you can't kill me with a stove. So I could probably get it out with a crowbar if I needed to. But again, (laughs) this is all fake. It really does feel like so much of you just got to keep the content machine churning. Look, Richard Trumpka, We'll see what he cooks up, literally. (laughs) And it doesn't seem like really anything's going to happen with this, but it is like just another sort of talking point that can be stacked on top of the last one. But it had a little flourish to it. I'll give him that. I mean, certainly, I feel like it's rare for kind of a policy thing to be as concrete. You won't be able to buy a gas stove anymore. And so I think there are some states that conservatives were able to latch onto. Yeah, absolutely. And the flip side of this is in Montana, I saw that some legislators are trying to introduce a law that would ban like the sale of electric vehicles. Obviously, they can't do that. But whatever Democrats do, they need to have an equal and opposite reaction. So and I also saw that uh, national level legislators are pushing what they call like the Stove Act. It's like stop trying to overregulate our whatever V and E stand for. So it's going to be done for another month or so. You're still going to have your gas stove and ultimately nothing will be learned. Okay, Kelly, we journey to New Mexico, the home of Breaking Bad, to find a failed political candidate who is himself broken bad. Yeah, that's right. So I don't know if you were following this earlier in the month, but there was a series of pretty scary shootings at the homes of four Democratic elected officials around Albuquerque. No one was actually hurt except for, in one case, three bullets went through a 10-year-old's bedroom, pretty messed up. And hey, just this week, they've arrested guess who but a failed Republican political candidate. This is a fellow named Solomon Pena. He ran for the state house. He lost really badly. He got like 
26% of the yeah, vote. Yeah, he lost. I have a screenshot from his Ballotpedia page just for this reason. Yeah, he lost by like nearly 50 points. Yeah, yeah. He got 2,005 votes. So I don't think this man has a mandate from heaven. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but on Monday, police arrested this guy. They claim that he hired four people to shoot up these houses. And what is just wonderful to me is how little he seems to have done to distance himself from this alleged scheme. He's accused of texting the house's addresses to these four goons. He showed up once himself, which is what you, at least according to like SVU, you should never do. Don't actually go to the scene. And he tried to fire an automatic rifle into the house, but it malfunctioned. So the house was shot up with a handgun. They later found that handgun and this candidate Solomon Pena's car. So mm, looks fairly open and shut. We're obviously still waiting for details, still waiting at this moment for a formal criminal complaint. But what's really interesting to me about Solomon Pena is he is a stop the steal guy. He, after losing his election so badly, immediately pulled like a Kari Lake and said there were discrepancies. I don't believe I actually lost. I haven't conceded. And in fact, one of his most recent tweets on his campaign Twitter is saying, Trump just announced for 2024. I stand with him. I never conceded my HD 14, his district race. I am now researching my options. And Wow. Wow. What a ominous tweet to leave up shortly before a shooting. Now researching my options. Yeah. What an option he chose. Yeah. He's standing in front of some Trump flags in this picture. He's wearing what appears to be a sign to make America great again sweater. This is such a strange case. But as you said, I mean, it does seem like there's a good chance this was motivated by his belief that he had been the election was stolen from him. These guys love to focus on county officials that you stole the election from me. There are a couple of curious details in this case. One of them is that when the one of these people associated with him who was caught. Also, he had some guns and he had nearly a thousand fentanyl pills in his car. So I'm curious if these guys he hired were like already criminals, you know, how he finds these guys. I mean, certainly in a typical version of this story, I think you would expect him to do the shooting himself. So I'm curious about why he contracted it out allegedly and then also tried to, I guess, show it up anyway. Because normally the kind of the rule of thumb is unless you're in a criminal organization already, if you're trying to hire a hitman or something, it's just not going to work out. The guy's an undercover agent, something like that. So I'm curious, these diehard Salomon Pena supporters who were willing to do this. He just couldn't keep himself away. Dedicated. He's part of the team. He needs to show up. Actually, no. What's so funny, though, is that this is like far from his first alleged criminal offense because when he was running for office this year, there were actually movements to say, hey, if this long shot candidate does win, we can probably bar him from office because of his past felony conviction. So in 2008, he's accused, well, not accused, convicted of stealing, quote, large amounts of goods from several big box retail stores in a reported smash and grab scheme. That's from the Albuquerque Journal. He did like seven years in prison for that. And while we'd love to see a guy turn his life around, it was already kind of controversial whether he was legally allowed to take office if he had one. This is, uh, I mean, this is such a strange story. Another aspect of it, and I'll give Republicans a little credit on this, it sort of Seems like this guy was a bit off the wall even before he became a candidate and a Republican. And I say that because he is also affiliated with Lyndon LaRouche, the now deceased proto-fascist figure, convict, truly really bizarre guy. It's my dream to someday make a narrative podcast about him. A guy who had this kind of weird, like third way cult of personality approach to American politics. And you find these LaRouches popping up associated with Democrats and more recently a lot with Republicans. I saw, I think they either love or hate nuclear power. They really despise the Queen of England, right? I recently saw a bunch of people dunking on some LaRouches who were supporting Trump saying like, well, these Trumpies are nuts. And it's like, well, it's not really it's not really like mainline MAGAism to despise the Queen of England. <laughs> Although it certainly pops up in various ways. So he has this LaRouche connection. There's just a lot going on with this guy. And I think he's a Kelly... We were talking about this, and you kind of you mentioned George Santos here. And while George Santos has fortunately not been implicated in these shooting plots, he has kind of a similar vibe in that it's just like a really weird guy who's not necessarily even associated with politics initially and sort of gets sucked into it. Yeah, absolutely. So George Santos, he seems to have got kind of sucked into politics because he couldn't stop just promoting himself. He was his own best hype man. He has like 
how many now kind of fake businesses where he was always the CEO, he was always the star on the volleyball team. He loves himself. He's always going to promote himself to do more. This guy reminds me of Santos a little bit, except that I don't think it's he's doing this as his own hype man. I think he's doing this as his own kind of grievance peddler. And why I say that is because so the AP reports that after the election, Pena showed up uninvited at several elected officials homes with what he claimed were documents proving he'd actually won his race. Now, we haven't seen those documents, but I can imagine all these just complete forgeries on telegram channels that show absolutely whatever people want to cook up about local elections. So he's pushing those. But then I was going back and kind of doing a document trawl on this fellow. And I saw that when he was in prison for that smash and grab scheme, he unsuccessfully sued his prison three times. And hey, listen, prisons suck. Like they're plenty of reasons to sue a prison. But I'm like, let's dig in. Let's see what he sued the prison for. One time was that he tried going to the library and a guard said, no, you can't go to the library. And the guy said, ah, I was supposed to go to the library. Now I'm suing. Another time was he had a work duty. He didn't really understand where he was supposed to go for that work detail. And so he got a misconduct report for being late. So he sued again. And then the third time, which is my favorite, I think, is he applied to work in a prison kitchen and the prison said no, for whatever reason. And he sued Well, that's a powerful role. I know on Orange is the New Black, that Russian lady (laughs) kind of ran the prison because of that. So I can see why he'd want in. Absolutely. You score some free lotion, like the real kingmaker in the prison. And my favorite paragraph in this wonderful handwritten lawsuit is the final one. It says, that is basically the sum of it. To date, the plaintiff has still not been appointed to kitchen graveyard. When the plaintiff sees various prison bosses walking throughout the prison, he attempts to speak with them about getting appointed to the kitchen graveyard. They just blow him off. (laughs) It's really funny that this guy was doing this. And then a few years later, he's like, all right, I'm ready to be a state rep now. Yeah, absolutely. And he's sort of grievanced his way to the top. I mean, it's not nothing to be able to run in a general. And the guy does seem to have made it there. He just took it a little bit too far by allegedly shooting up four houses. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating case. Speaking of, as long as we're on George Santos, I have to say, George Santos, to me, the most fascinating character in American politics probably even since before Trump. I think he is so wild. The scams keep more and more scams keep coming to light. One of my favorites last week was this idea, and I don't think this got a ton of attention amidst all like the ties to Russian oligarchs and all this, but this idea that there's a group chat for George Santos victims where they all just like (laughs) chat about like, oh, George duped me. There was this woman where apparently he said, hey, the neighborhoods are really dangerous. You should probably give me your jewels to hang on to. And then she said, okay. And then, you know, I mean, this is the- Wow. These are the kind of scams I would pull in like free to play online RPGs when I was in high school. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, uh, can I try on to that sword? And like, see ya. <laughs> He's really like scam king. I guess we're past the cultural moment where we really love scammers. Like I said, he's the scam representative. And why he would then run for office and draw all this attention to himself, it's just inexplicable. He's like an Anna Delvey, right? He's like the scam girl who passed herself off as German royalty. And he got the money, right? That was nice. He got the fancy hotel rooms like she did. But it's not really just about the tangible items. It's about the prestige. It's about the fame. And he just had to keep going. I think that was the tragicomic downfall of George Santos. We'll keep an eye on George. I think there's much more fun stuff to come out of him. All right, Will, who is our guest this week? Okay, so Kelly, in conservative media, there's this longstanding trope of the sort of the liberal mainstream media defector who's going to tell you how rock things are on the inside. Certainly when I was young, I would watch Bernie Goldberg, who I associated with some network news show, who became sort of one of Bill O'Reilly's cronies who would say how awful things are. But it's a little rare that we see someone go from the conservative media to the liberal media. This week, we've got Matthew Sheffield. He's a national correspondent for the Young Turks, and he hosts a podcast called Theory of Change. But for our purposes, I'm a little more interested in his earlier resume. He was in on the ground floor at right-wing news sites like Newsbusters and the Washington Examiner. After he left that world, he had some real insider takes on what drives conservative media and why they sort of constantly blunder into these issues and what the mindset is that I think are really valuable. So I'm excited to talk with him. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Matthew Sheffield. He's a national correspondent for the Young Turks and the host of the podcast Theory of Change. He's here to talk to us about his time inside conservative media and what he learned from it. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So, Matthew, walk me through your time in right-wing media. How did you get started there, and then what led you to leave? Well, so I was blogging before the word was even invented. One of my brothers and I, we started a website in 2000 that was attacking Dan Rather, who was then the chief anchor of the CBS Evening News. And we decided we didn't like him because we supported impeaching Bill Clinton. That was how we got started. And we launched it in 2000 and really actually got sick of it after a while and stopped the site. And then we had so many requests to bring it back. We came back in 2002 and then ran it through the end of his career there. And then I went on to found Newsbusters, which is kind of like media matters for the right wing, and then was the first online managing editor of the Washington Examiner and did a few other things as well. So what led you to leave that world? Well, so I was born and raised as a fundamentalist Mormon. So I was into Christian nationalism before anybody even knew it was a thing. Because actually in Mormonism, American Christian nationalism is literally in the Book of Mormon. It's something that a lot of people don't know. Anyway, but eventually, over time, I decided I didn't believe in Mormonism, but I still believed in right-wing viewpoints. And I decided to keep going on the right and as a what I called myself a secular conservative. Over the years, people would always tell me, oh, this is probably not a good idea for you to self-identify as non-Christian. might not be good for your career. And I said, ah, who cares? I'm doing all this stuff here. It doesn't matter. But eventually I realized they were right and that there were a lot of people who actually hated me as I would push back on Christian nationalism as a conservative and that it did really limit my career opportunities. And I came to that realization because after working sort of in the right-wing media trenches for about 15 years, I decided to start writing a book about how Republicans could be better at politics. And in the course of writing it, I one of my points was that Republicans need to realize that there's a lot of people in the United States who are not Christian fundamentalists, and they need to accept that and accept that they are Americans too. And as part of investigating that thesis, I actually started looking at the Christian right, which I had kind of ignored it because like that's something that a lot of people in order to work in right-wing media and have a career there there's a lot of people who are not christian fundamentalists don't have those viewpoints they kind of and i certainly did this myself and i've seen other people do it that they just kind of pretend that the christian right doesn't exist they don't pay attention to anything they say or do because they're they think well i don't agree with them but they have the right to do what they want to do And I had no idea once I started looking into what they actually thought and what they wanted was that they wanted far right Christians to have more civil rights than anyone else in the United States. And that was just horrifying. And I saw that they a lot of these people actually still wanted to they were not just against same sex marriage. They still wanted to criminalize homosexuality. And those positions are positions that these groups still hold today. It's kind of shocking to have that perspective because I think even now a lot of moderates or sort of urban cocooned liberals or progressives, they don't have any actual real up-close experience with far-right religious perspectives. And so they're almost not real to them. They, it's just something you see on TV or something you see on the internet. They don't understand that these are people who they are at war with modernity. Like they want evolution not to be taught in school. They still think it's controversial. So Matthew, I mean, speaking as kind of a godless East Coast liberal, the idea that you'd be pushed out or persecuted in right-wing media because you didn't share a religious perspective with some people is pretty striking to me. Can you tell me about how ethics work in right-wing media and how they might differ from more mainstream media? 
Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the long and short of it is there basically are no ethical standards in right-wing media. So, for instance, I was routinely, I was somebody who was both doing writing and journalism and also doing activism and consulting, but I personally always made it so that I would never write about things that I was directly involved in. So, in other words, if I was working for an organization, I would either disclose that I was working for them in my writing about that subject, or I would not write about them at all. I was routinely approached over the years by people saying, hey, if we pay you money, will you write a column about how such and such candidate is bad for Republicans and they shouldn't vote for them in the primary? And I people literally offered to pay me money to write columns to that effect. And I always refused them. And I thought that that was slimy and unethical. But the more it kept happening to me, I realized, wow, there must be some people that are saying yes to this. And then I, and I personally experienced that. So when I was at the Examiner, one of the things that we did was that we opened up a kind of an affiliate program with different independent bloggers to try to get them some more visibility for things that they were already writing. And there was a guy who was starting a publication. It was, I believe, called the National Ledger, I think was the name of it. His name is Ben Dominich, who is now the co-founder of The Federalist. But unbeknownst to us, his blog, The National Ledger, was being funded by the Malaysian government. He was being secretly paid to launder pro-Malaysian viewpoints to Republicans. And in our contracts with people, we explicitly told them, you must disclose any affiliation to you. And of course, he did not disclose that at all. And after I left the examiner, it came out publicly that he had been on, on the take for all these years, and they were outraged and actually deleted all the articles that were there. And they were right to do so. But that's the kind of thing. And you see it over and over. And it's not just an old thing. Like you saw it with Sean Hannity, who was secretly, who was talking to Donald Trump in the White House every single day, basically, and giving him advice and listening to his ideas and helping him shape his media message and never told the viewers that. And that's how it was with all of these Fox News hosts. Laura Ingram on January 6th was freaking out and telling Trump, you need to get your people out of there, out of the Capitol after the Trump supporters had invaded the Capitol. And then that very night on her show, she pretended that it was Antifa that might have done it. So I mean, those kind of things, I kept running into these things. It was often hard to tell the line between malevolence and incompetence with a lot of these people. And in many cases, it was both simultaneously. I love these moments where these kind of pay to play things because they're so obvious where because suddenly some conservative figure will be incredibly into this niche foreign policy issue. Think about Michael Flynn writing an op-ed in The Hill about Turkish internal politics or one I got was these all of a sudden all these columnists were writing about this kind of niche issue related to Guam and like, oh, can you believe they're doing this to Guam? And then, of course, they'd all just gone on a junket to Guam. So you've talked about how within conservative media, they have this view that what we might think of as the mainstream media, that they're all corrupt anyway, and that they're just working for liberals. So they should feel that they can do whatever for conservatives. Can you expand on that? Sure. Yeah. Well, basically, it's something that a lot of mainstream media reporters and commentators, they don't understand that when right-wing media figures are criticizing liberal bias, quote unquote, they're not acting in good faith. That actually was another frustration that I had. So that when I was criticizing what I thought was liberal bias in some instances, I actually meant it. I meant that I wanted them to show both sides of some policy issue or whatever. But what I realized was that a lot of people that I worked with and were my colleagues outside of in other organizations, that their viewpoint was that things were liberally biased if they were critical of a Republican. And it didn't even matter if they were true. That, In other words, if it were indisputable that somebody had committed some crime or lied or whatever, if you even reported that at all, that was biased. You should not report it at all, basically, was their viewpoint. And you can see that. So like, for instance, Fox News, they routinely, the thing about Fox that is the most insidious and Fox and right-wing media generally is what they don't say to their audience. So like, for instance, when, as I was saying, like with Laura Ingram on January 6th, but it's, I mean, they do it all the time. Like they will spike stories. So like, for instance, when Kanye West went on the Alex Jones show and repeatedly said how much he loved Hitler, 
That story actually never appeared on the Fox News website. They never wrote a single story about it. And to the extent that they mentioned it at all, incidentally, or in some other stories, it was always, well, Jewish Republican group is upset at Kanye West. But they never told their audience fully what he actually said. And that's important because a lot of there are a lot of people in this country who are sort of tangential Republicans, might be termed fellow travelers, and they actually think that Democrats are more radical than Republicans. They literally think this. They believe this, even though obviously no Democrats or as far left as you want, have never invaded the Capitol and threatened to hang the vice president and the Speaker of the House. They've constructed this entire cinematic universe for themselves in which America's cities were burned to the ground, literally, by Antifa and Black Lives Matter. But this stuff didn't happen. But there are literally tens of millions of Americans who believe that it did. And it's really really incredible. And and it's important for people who do mostly consume mainstream or left of center media to understand that this is happening. So you've kind of alluded to this a couple times with Laura Ingram's texts on January 6th, but can you maybe draw a through line between this right-wing media bubble and how it led people to the Capitol that day? Sure. So one of the other sort of secrets of right-wing propaganda is that The people who are often present themselves as if they're mainstream are actually much more radical than they let on. So like an example would be Ben Shapiro. He often presents as anti-Trump or something like that, tries to present himself as a reasonable Republican. But Ben Shapiro went on a white nationalist podcast and bashed secular Jews and liberal Jews and said that Jews in Hollywood were waging, quote, a war on Christianity. And they paired his interview with an advertisement for another one that they did with one of America's most prominent anti-Semitic writers. And then just a few weeks ago, Shapiro said that he believed that the Civil Rights Act went too far, that it should be legal for private individuals to engage in racial and religious discrimination. Because if they weren't allowed to do that, then his fundamentalist religious views would be not allowed to exist. And so therefore racial and any other kind of discrimination by private actors should be allowed. So this is really incredibly astonishingly radical stuff. And it's not just him. I mean, and so basically, because a lot of them are much more radical than they present in public, usually. And then you've got the other phenomenon that, so, you know, in in the Democratic Party, there's a continual battle between people who have more centrist slash conservative views, like Larry Summers, for instance, or Bill Clinton versus people like Bernie Sanders and AOC who have more leftward leaning viewpoints. They're constantly battling with each other. Whereas on the Republican side, there are no centrists with any sort of power. There are no media outlets who align with centrism in the Republican Party. There are literally none. And so what that means is that there is that basically the center of gravity in the Republican Party is always tugging everything to the far right. And the reason being is that the Republican base, the core base of Republican voters, which is white, evangelical, fundamentalist Christians, they are this radical. They are skeptical of democracy. They oppose women's rights. They oppose LGBTQ existence. And so that for many decades, there was kind of this sort of country club Republican that did have some amount of power, even though they had very economically radical viewpoints, that they weren't as on board with the Christian supremacism. But over time, under the Trump years, basically what happened is that the kind of the dividing line that the country club Republicans had managed to build got torn down, and Trump invited the far right into the White House. So you had the people who were in the Freedom Caucus were running the Trump White House because all the other sort of corporate Republicans, they were horrified by Trump and they didn't want to work for him. So Mark Meadows worked for him. Mick Mulvaney worked for him. And Jenna Ellis and Kaylee McEnany. Like these are people with... Kaylee McEnany has literally written a book talking about how she compares herself to Esther in the Bible. And Esther is this legend story where there's a woman who literally saves the Jews from genocide because the evil people were going to kill them. That's 
who Kaylee McEnany sees herself as similar to. And she wrote that earlier in her career when she was at The Blaze. She wrote a number of essays. There's a really great New Republic essay that kind of documents some of her views on this. And hopefully you guys can get that in the show notes. But so like they have an apocalyptic worldview in which Jesus is going to come back if they have power. And so it animates everything that they do. And so the idea that Trump would be forced to give up the White House after the Christian right had attained the most power it had ever achieved in history. It was anathema. It was not just a tragedy, it was an abomination. And so anything was justified to keep Trump in the White House. And so while they might not personally have believed in these ridiculous conspiracy theories about voting machines or ballot mules. I mean, they literally just cooked up that 2000 Mules movie. They weren't talking about any of that stuff before January 6th or at any point in 2020. Nobody was saying that stuff. But the point isn't to believe what you say or that it even is true, because the underlying truth is that America was created by God for Christians. And so therefore, Christians can do anything in order to have power. So Matthew, a question I get a lot is, how much do people who work in the right-wing media actually believe what they're saying? And my answer is, I think pretty much they do believe it for the most part. What would you say to that? Well, I think it depends on who you're talking about. So I mentioned Kaylee McEnany and Jenna Ellis and people like that. They absolutely, they believe the religious viewpoints, but I think it's the specifics It certainly varies. So there was a a lawsuit by one of the voting machine companies against Fox News, and Sean Hannity was deposed at that, and he said he, he never for a minute believed the various conspiracy ideas put forward by Sidney Powell. But of course, on the air, he pretended as if Sidney Powell was a legitimate person. So I think the specific things that they say, they don't necessarily believe, but ultimately, it doesn't matter whether they believe it or not, because they still say it. So Matthew, you talk about this idea, something we also talk about here is this idea of this kind of, the right-wing media is always pushing the Republican Party further to the right, because there really aren't any incentives to moderate. How would Republican moderates, how can they break out of that cycle? How can, or do you think that's just sort of a permanent thing? Because it seems to me like all of the incentives in the right-wing media are to cater to a more and more extreme base. Yeah, well, that is what the incentives are. And I mean, a lot of this goes back to the... 1920s and 30s. I mean, the other thing about right-wing politics is that the viewpoints themselves never change. It's only how they talk about them that changes. These activists have had the same viewpoints since the 1930s and the 1920s. So like when they tried to ban evolution from being taught in public schools, like that's, they've never stopped having that viewpoint. They've never stopped trying to dismantle the New Deal, like to get rid of Social Security, get rid of Medicare and Medicaid. They don't want those things to exist, but they don't talk about them very much in public. But the reality is there are a lot of people who vote for Republicans who don't have those viewpoints, but they have no idea what these donors and very well lavishly funded activists want. And so for those people, they have to wake up and understand just how radical their party mates are. But I would say that they also have to be more willing to shake up the apple cart. And they've showed throughout their entire history that more moderately inclined Republicans are cowardly. They do not have any courage of their principles. And you saw that in beginning in 1964 when the right wing took over the Republican Party with Barry Goldwater. That There were a lot of people who didn't like Goldwater, but many of them just sort of said, well, he's a Republican and I'm a Republican, so I'm going to vote for him. But they have to do more than that. They have to actually stand up for themselves and talk about how and denounce right wing radicalism and denounce Christian supremacism. And they did have an opportunity when the House You know, in that recent controversy with Kevin McCarthy, when he was trying to become the Speaker of the House, if there had been enough courageous moderate Republicans, they could have wielded all the power in the House if they had tried to form a coalition government with Democrats. And they wouldn't have had to put forward Hakeem Jeffries or some other Democrat. They could have put forward one of themselves. They could have done it. And there is no doubt in my mind that the Freedom Caucus would do something like that if they saw it as advantageous to themselves. And in fact, when he was in the Senate, uh, Jim DeMint, he was a senator from South Carolina, and now he's one of the most highly paid right-wing operatives now, now that he's in the private sector. But when he was in the Senate, he would routinely say, I would rather 
have a small number of Republicans who agree with me and be a small minority than have a majority with people who disagree with me. And the Republican moderates need to understand that if they don't have that attitude about their own viewpoints, they will never win because the far right, they're playing for keeps. And as a result, they constantly stomp on the moderate Republican. And the moderate Republicans, I mean, ultimately, in my own experience, shows that this, for all this nonsense about cancel culture that Republicans are constantly complaining about, they actually invented canceling people. They have been canceling moderate Republicans, moderate Christians since the 1960s. If you were somebody who was a secular Republican or you were somebody who had a non-fundamentalist viewpoint about the Bible, they were coming for you and they would get rid of you and they do everything they could to get rid of you. So they have to realize that either you get out of the party and encourage people to do the same or actually fight for your viewpoints inside the party. And that doesn't happen. Well, I think that's a great place to end it on. We've been joined by Matthew Sheffield. He's a national correspondent for the Young Turks and the host of his own podcast called Theory of Change. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, once again, we journey into fresh hell. We get a real slice of something ominous and yet intriguing. Kelly, what do you have for us? So, all right. So this isn't necessarily new, but the scale of it, the popularity of it is pretty newly disturbing. Will, do you know about sovereign citizens? Am I being detained? Am I being detained? (laughs) Yes. Sovereign (laughs) citizens are the folk who sort of exist in a legal realm of their own inventing. And they think that if they fill out documents in a certain way or sort of answer in these kind of legal legal riddles that they can get out of trouble. People may know them from videos where it's like sovereign citizen gets pulled over by a cop and he just says, I'm not Will Summer. This is the you're speaking to the corporation rep- representing Will Summer. I'm a man upon the land. And those videos are absolutely my guilty pleasure. I watch so many of them that YouTube just starts automatically recommending them to me. Um, sovereign citizens. Yeah, basically a group of people who think the U.S. doesn't exactly exist or that all laws are fake or that they've somehow personally emancipated themselves from laws. And all of that is well and good, except when they have to go to court or they have to obey basic traffic laws. Or right now, when we're seeing a lot of January 6th defendants trying to defend themselves in court using these sovereign citizen arguments. I wrote recently about more than a dozen now January 6th defendants using sovereign citizen pseudo-legal language in their filings, trying to claim that their convictions should be overturned because actually the court doesn't exist or actually they're not defendant, but they're the corporation representing the defendant. And it's not just these people who are currently facing January 6th criminal cases. There's sort of an emerging media ecosphere of sovereign citizen influencers. And there's a figure named Ann Vandersteel, who's become pretty popular on Telegram channels, on sort of alternative web streaming videos. Well, can you tell me about Anne and this red fingerprint thing that she's doing? Because I've seen that red fingerprint around for a couple of years in the sovereign citizen world, but really feels like it's unfortunately cracking into some mainstream discourse. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this because the red fingerprint in particular is becoming like a symbol of sovereign citizens. And so some of these January 6th defendants, they put a red fingerprint on their legal filings. And now it's becoming like to show off that you're a sovereign citizen. You take a picture of yourself with a finger you've dipped in red ink. So Kelly, do you have an idea of like where they're getting this idea? So I've seen this red fingerprint around for ages. And just like as an example, it was maybe in 2017 when I was looking into a case of neo-Nazi furries fighting Antifa furries over a furry convention. And there was one far right furry who was also a sovereign citizen and he was using the red fingerprint. I'm like, why, why, why don't you use a red paw print? There was so much missed potential there. But that's just to say that it's been around a while. (laughs) I think the red is meant to represent blood. When I was looking at January 6th defendants, yes. there was one who is currently in prison, didn't have access to red ink, and used what appears to be his literal blood on a filing. And you can tell it's congealed in brown rather than red. Oh, God. <laughs> what a mess. Yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> so the explanation here is that many sovereign citizens believe that there are kind of two aspects 
aspects to a person. One is their government corporate identity that exists in documents on birth certificates and whatever. And then there's your real, quote, flesh and blood identity. Um, and I'm quoting here from an article from Vox from 2016. And so the idea is sort of like whenever the government wants to tax you or put you in jail or something, that trouble kind of falls on your corporate identity. But that's not really you. So it's not fair for you to th- for them to imprison your flesh and blood or sort of like your real identity. There's kind of like some, <laughs> some kind of like witchcraft aspects to this. So when they signed it in red ink or sometimes indeed blood, the implication is that they're like, this is not corporate will or kelly this is flesh and blood will and so you can't keep my flesh and blood persona for example in jail for january 6th like you said they're trying to distinguish between their literal selves and their names there have been some really fascinating variations on this of course none of this is real legal theory but because they believe that people's names are actually copyrights i ran into a guy who kept trying to legally claim the copyrights of famous people which i thought was kind of funny like he claimed to be the copyright holder of bill gates and Paul McCartney, right? So that he actually owns Bill Gates and Paul McCartney because the versions that we see of them are their representation in the world and not their literal blood. But this tactic is getting pretty popular, I think, in some niche Facebook groups and some Telegram channels. And there are a lot of people advising each other on how to do it. When I was looking into January 6th defendants, I ran into one. She's a pizzeria owner in Pennsylvania. People might have heard of her because she was in court saying that she was there by divine appearance and wouldn't answer to a judge. And I'm like, okay, lady, where did you learn this? Well, it turns out she learned it from a Telegram influencer who told me that he's only really been looking into this stuff for a couple years. And in retrospect, he probably wouldn't have told her to use those arguments. He probably would have told her to get an attorney. So these are the people who are telling folks to either sign your court documents with a red fingerprint or to literally slice your hand open and put some uh, blood, put some biohazard onto the court filings. I know court clerks love it when you do that. I'd also be remiss, and I think I can anonymize it enough. Something I had to cut from a recent story was I was looking at Sovereign Citizen January 6th court filings, and there was one who, in the process of trying to argue that he was some sovereign legal entity, put his bank account and routing number on publicly accessible court documents, which is not (laughs) something you should do. So folks, if you're thinking about trying to fight a traffic ticket by saying that you don't really exist, that you're a straw man corporation, at the very, very least, do not put your social security number or anything where I can plug in your bank accounts to my car payment and just run that for a couple months. Fill up that IRA. (laughs) So the just being that the red fingerprint thing has become, it's not just like a sovereign citizen legal thing now, but more recently, I think we're seeing it as like their symbol. And so taking the picture with the red fingerprint is like, I am a sovereign citizen. I am alive. And of course, look, are people making money off this? Oh, it goes without saying. So, I mean, in this case, Anne Vandersteel is promoting these like sovereign citizen courses. There are all these sovereign citizen kind of teachers around who will, in exchange for some money from your flesh and blood persona, will teach you how to basically how to get out of whatever legal jam you're in with their various legal schemes. I just want to make folks aware of the fingerprint thing because I was just seeing this everywhere. And we had to look into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I know tax season's coming up. I don't think most sovereign citizens file their taxes, but folks, if you're going to do that, maybe use a pen. Don't just stamp your paint-covered hand and onto your W-2. You've got to actually file that with the tax office. And good luck. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 